I'm excited to share uh, my testimony of how God worked in my life to save an, uh, an unregenerate dead sinner to be a child of God. So with that, I want to start with a question, and that is, what controls people? What controls people? In that I'm not talking about a robotic control of a puppeteer, you know, moving a puppet, but what motivates people to do what they do? What motivates us to get up in the morning and put on the shirt that we did and to sit where we sit in class and to sit where you guys are sitting in chapel? What motivates us to do what we do? And to that, I want to answer the question, what motivates me and what controls me? And that is the question I want to answer in our time together in, our, in, in sharing my testimony is that you should be able to ask yourself, what controls James? What controls James? And at, 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 throughout the testimony, you should be able to answer that question. And to help divide our time together, I'm going to share the testimony, and that is 2 Corinthians um, 5.17 puts it this way. If you are in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Um, the old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. And that is what I will be sharing with you, that how I became a new creature in Christ. And the second half of our time, I'm going to talk about what that change means when considering the mission of the church. That is to make disciples, that is to evangelize. Um, and if you're a Christian, then you are part of the church. You are part of the universal church. And the mission of the church, as Jesus said in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples. So I hope that is an encouragement to you um, as I share what God has done in my life. As you guys can probably tell, I was born in Korea, or you, I've, maybe I've told you, but I was born in Korea, in the second biggest city in Korea, Busan, with a family of five. I was the youngest of three, and I grew up there the first 10 years of my life before I moved to Boulder, Colorado, and when I tell people that I can speak Korean fluently, that I speak it with my parents, um, it baffles people. They're like, oh man, that's so cool, but I just think that's what I grew up with, but once I told someone that I was the youngest sibling, um, one of my friends, he said, he's surprised to hear that I'm the youngest, or he's not surprised to hear that I'm the youngest. And I was surprised by his comment that he wasn't surprised. And I asked him why. And he said, because you look for trouble. You go looking for trouble. And that's how you know you're the youngest. At home and at school, at playgrounds, um, and at church, I was the troublemaker. I would always be looking for trouble, or I don't know if the trouble came looking for me, but I always seemed to be around trouble. I was the kid that would sneak up behind you with a cup of water and pour it down your shirt. Um, I would be the kid, if someone said, oh man, that can't be done, I would be the one who says, oh no, it can be done, and I will prove to you that I can do it. Like I said before, um, I want to answer the question, what controls me? And during this phase of my life where I was looking for trouble, it was attention. I wanted people to notice me. I wanted people to think certain way about me. And in my childhood, it was anger. I was constantly angry with my parents, with my siblings, especially my brother. He was smarter than me. He was, um, he was better at sports than me. So I got jealous and that fleshed out in anger. In my youth, I was controlled by what people thought of me. I wanted to please people. I wanted to, yeah, I, I did everything to please people. I wanted to do well in school so that people would think highly of me. I wanted to please my parents in that way. In my young adulthood, which is about high school and college, 
I was controlled by my desire to please my flesh. I was consumed by whatever made me feel good, and that led a path of living a very immoral life with alcohol, drugs, and pornography. Those were my idols, and it didn't matter what the consequences were. And in fact, to share a kind of a sad story, at the end of my freshman year, I, um, it, it was done, I was done with my freshman semester, and I was thinking about celebrating with people who I should not have been hanging around with, and I found myself waking up in the emergency room at the Bozeman Deaconess Hospital from um, alcohol consumption. So I, I had blacked out, and I had found myself probably at the lowest point of my life. And you might be thinking that should have changed how I lived, but I was still enslaved to this sin, being controlled by it. Jesus summarized it pretty well. Um, he said in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Sin was a habitual reality in my life, and I didn't even know it. I didn't want to admit it. I was blind to it and blinded by it. I was enslaved and controlled by sin. And in the midst of all this, all these things that I've just told you, they're pretty depressing. I would have told you I am a Christian. And I would have told you that because I told you I'm a Christian. That, that was kind of the basis of my faith, is because I said I'm a Christian. And I went to church um, for a very legalistic reason. I went to church and I told you I'm a Christian, so I must be a Christian. But he wasn't, uh, but Jesus Christ wasn't my Lord in that I didn't obey him. I, I had no repentance. And as most of you know, um, James chapter 2, verse 19 and 20 reads this. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Scripture is clear that at salvation, believers believe and repent. Yet I thought I could get by just believing, just saying, okay, I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to change how I live. In fact, my life was getting worse and worse. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. So here I was in Bozeman, about to go to MSU, going to MSU, living on, the first, uh, living on the South Hedges, and having no idea that God would humble me through people and through experiences. I often pray for my unbelieving friends that God would humble them and make them miserable. And you might be thinking, wow, that is a sad prayer. But I know that God often uses people in their lowest moments to save them, to, to make them realize their total depravity um, and to come to reality with their sins. So that is why I pray. And that's what I received from God, that I was miserable in recognizing that sin had no everlasting joy that I was looking for. So God humbled me and he had a plan. And this plan was accomplished, like I said, through people. Yes, he used circumstances in my life, but he used people. And the reason I emphasize people is because that's God's plan of salvation. He uses people, these weak, fragile beings, not angels, not living creatures, but people. He empowered the apostles through the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel. Romans 10 says this, For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? 
how will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I lived on the floor, like I said, on the, on the, the south hedges, my freshman year with 60 other people. There were 60 people living on that one single floor. And on that floor, out of 60 people, there was one Christian. One Christian. So you do the math. 59 people on that floor, including myself, lived to please self. And one person lived to please the living God. Do you think that's a fair match? Not a chance. 59 spiritually dead Corpses stand no chance against the one person who is alive in Christ in power to do his will. How many of you, let me just by show of hands, how many of you here work a job where your co-workers, all of them, are Christians? Not including NBC staff members. <laughs> so not too many of us. Um, on the flip side, how many of you have family members and friends who are not Christians? That's right. The reason I ask that question is because all of us have someone to reach with the gospel. Someone who God sovereignly placed in your life and in my life to share what the Bible calls the power of God. That is the gospel. We are very blessed to be here. We are very blessed to be here. Because if you really wanted to, and if I really wanted to, I could, we could go a whole day without seeing a single unbeliever. I hope you don't do that, but that, that could be the case. But that also could be the saddest reality, that, that we have been saved to be the light of the world, and we go a whole day without seeing a single unbeliever. In Matthew 5, Jesus tells his disciples, you are the light of the world. Then he says in the following verse, let your light shine before men in such a way that, you, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He didn't say, be a light. He didn't say, pray really hard so that you would be an effective light. He said, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And the world must see the light of Christ in us. We can't be hiding. Friends, get this. We're either the light of the world or the darkness of the world. There's, nothing, there's, there's no middle ground. And I say all of this because this one Christian on my floor from my dorm proclaimed the gospel and lived out the gospel in front of me in my dark, dark world. I was a fake, hypocritical Christian, and he was a genuine follower of Christ. So out of God's abundant grace, he used Ben the Christian, one Christian, to reach out to me for evangelism and discipleship. At first, I hated it. I really did. I did not enjoy talking about God. I did not enjoy having to give up my life to him and to follow and obey him. Yet, I realized that I couldn't just sit here with my sin in front of me and not address it. And Ben could probably tell that I hated meeting with him, but he was very gracious and patient. And I can assure you, I want to encourage you, all of you, as you disciple, as you evangelize, be patient with the person who's across from you, because you don't know what God is doing in their hearts. So through this ministry of Ben teaching the Bible, God saved me, and he showed me that knowing him is not a mere mental acknowledgement, but it is to surrender all that I am to all that he is. 
Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Remember, I wanted to answer the question, what controls me? It used to be my feelings. It used to be my desires. It used to be those around me. It used to be alcohol. It used to be anger. But when I have received Christ by faith and repentance, it was no longer myself that controlled me, but it was the love of Christ. So if you have your Bible with, me, with you, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 reads this. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. The love of Christ was the absolute driving force. When I became a Christian, when I repented of my sin and believed in the work of Christ, the love of Christ was the absolute authority in my life. And that was such a joy to know that I no longer have to live for myself, but to live for him who died for my sins. When I understood what Jesus did for me, an undeserving, wretched sinner, to take on the full force of God's wrath, man, I had a burning desire to live purely. I made it my aim every day to be more holy, to be more pure than I was the day before. And not only that, I wanted others to know Christ. I had a God-inspired passion to the ministry of evangelizing the lost. Oh, how I still and still want more people to come to know Christ, still to this day. And I hope that passion increases until I am dead. That, that when I am 70 years old, I can look back and say, I am more zealous about evangelism than I was when I was 20. Now, looking back at 2 Corinthians 5.14, as I conclude the testimony and we transition to what this change life in my life means to the mission of the church, which is to make disciples. Um, I want to reiterate that I was controlled by the things of this world, and now I'm controlled by the love of Christ. I'm controlled by the love of Christ. And this love, I don't deserve it, right? All of us can stand here and say, this love, we do not deserve it yet. That's why it is love. That's why God said it is by grace you have been saved. So, due to this changed life, I wanted to live for Christ. And if you look at, starting in verse 15, and look down to verse 19, it reads this. And he, Christ, died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. There it is. There is the universal offer and invitation of salvation and of the gospel. Look, at, look back at verse 16. It says, um, 
we recognize no one according to the flesh. This means that we no longer see people. Ben no longer saw me as just a project, but a soul who desperately needed Christ. And if anyone, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. What an exciting news. Listen, we need to understand this. If love that Jesus has for us is real, just as this shirt is real, then it ought to change how we view people. It ought to change how we view ourselves. Because people desperately need this beautiful Savior. Friends, does the love of Christ control you? If so, look at what God says we are. Not what we are to do, but what we are. Look at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He who made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Friends, we are God's messengers. God uses people to reach the lost. If you, if, if you and I don't proclaim, who will? Who will proclaim if you and I don't proclaim the good news of the gospel in Bozeman? How would I have heard the good news if Ben, the only Christian on the floor with 59 unbelievers, did not proclaim the good news? And consider this, if the disciples of Christ, the 12 men, who were probably the low, one of the lowest of the low, lowest in that culture, did not, commit their, did not commit their lives to the task of being ambassadors, where would we be today? No one ever got to heaven because someone lived out their testimony in front of them. Have you ever considered that? No one ever got to heaven just because someone lived out his or her testimony in front of them. Sooner or later, we've got to. We've got to proclaim the good news. Friends, do you want to be used by God? Then here's my charge for you. Be controlled by the love of Christ. Be so overwhelmed by his love that it just comes out of you. That people say, wow, this man or this woman is controlled by the love of Christ. One of my professors used this analogy. It's a funny analogy. Um, if you were to eat an entire box of pizza, right, in one sitting, and you went out running, you would start sweating the grease of the pizza out of your pores, right? A Christian ought to be so consumed by the love of Christ that we are sweating Christ out of our pores. That when people bump into us, they smell Christ in us. And I think that was helpful. I was like, okay, I can, I can run with that. But, that, that, that. but that's what we ought to be, that we are so overwhelmingly consumed by the love of Christ. Because the world is filled with fear. Fear of dying, fear of rejection, fear of judgment, fear of failure, fear of punishment. Whether they want to admit it or not, the world is fearful and is filled with fear. And to this dying and fearful world, we bring the good news that says this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment 
and the one who fears is not perfected in love, we love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 18 through 19. So as we close, I want to get practical with you all. I want to give you three keys, three keys to being missional here and now to accomplish the mission of the church. First, remember Christ's love. Be constantly and increasingly amazed by God's love for the world. I mean it every day. If you, I mean, if you take anything away from this chapel message is this. Make it your aim, make it your goal every morning to be more in love with Christ than you were the day before. I, I guarantee you that will change your semester and your year. That if you commit to loving Christ more than you did yesterday, man, what kind of body of believers we would be at the end of the year. Second exhortation is this. Die. Die to yourself. Die to your fears. The biggest hindrance to evangelism by far is pride. It's pride. It is the desire to keep a certain image of ourselves in front of others. So die to yourself. So first, remember Christ's love. Second, die to yourself. And third, pray. Pray before you go to work, before you meet with your family member and friends who are unbelievers. Pray. And pray during the interactions. Pray after an interaction with an unbeliever. I cannot imagine going throughout a day and not praying for the people who I'm about to interact with. I just can't. It, it, it just... After interacting with an unbeliever, I can't help but not, I can't help but to pray, but to bring them before the Lord and saying, Lord, I, I want to be faithful. I hope I was faithful. Would you save this person through the gospel? So, to summarize, to be an ambassador is to be overwhelmingly controlled by God's love. And like I said earlier, ambassadors are messengers who verbally and faithfully deliver the message that they have been given. That means praying to be a better evangelist isn't really going to cut it. Maybe that offends you, but if I told you that I wanted to get better at playing the piano and I just really just prayed about it, you would think I'm crazy. And that's all you did? You just prayed that you would be a better piano, piano player? And that's the same with evangelism. We, we can't just be praying. I, I, I don't, don't hear me, don't mishear me in that you shouldn't be praying. You should be praying that you be a better evangelist, but also practice. Practice. I don't think I've heard a single evangelist that grew because he stood in front of a mirror preaching the gospel. We have to practice relational evangelism. And if you talk to the musicians in this room, they'll tell you that it is best to practice in front of people to get your nerves out. It is best also to practice with people that you sharpen one another. So here is my invitation to all of you. This Friday at noon, I'm going to go to MSU campus where there are thousands of unbelievers, literally thousands of people who live for themselves and not for the living God. I'm going to take a group of people and we're going to talk to strangers about the gospel. That might be scary to all of you, but I want to invite all of you to come. And I want to encourage you and pair you up with someone who's done it before. And I know what you might be thinking. You might be thinking, James, cold turkey, stranger evangelism is not the only way to evangelize. I also think, you know, um, relational evangelism is better and more effective. 
And to that, I say, amen. I agree with you. But there, has, there hasn't been anything more impactful in my relational evangelism than cold turkey evangelism. When I practice stranger and contact evangelism, I get better with those who are my family members, who are my friends, who don't believe. So, Friday at noon, if you want to come and if you're interested, you can talk to me. And one more thing, as we close, I want to encourage you that as we go throughout this semester and the chapel messages that, are, that will be shared, if there's anything in your heart that makes you curious or makes you wonder about if missions would be something that you want to pursue in your future, come talk to me. I would love to hear about your testimony. Um, I would love to hear about what God's doing in your life. So thank you for letting me share a little bit about what God has done in my life and to encourage you to be an ambassador for God's sake. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you that you allow us to serve you, that you allow us to serve you by proclaiming your message. Lord, help us be faithful. Help us be intentional with those around us. It is encouraging for us to be here and now be being equipped to do your work. Lord, um, teach us much. Help us not get complacent with the truth that we know from your word, but help us be ever more increasing in our love for you. We pray in, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.